You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Let's get our Bibles out this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, as we continue in our series, Messy Church, and the message today is ready for battle. And the question is, are you? Are you ready for battle? The Christian life is a battle. It's a battle against a strong enemy. Uh, the great news is, is that we win. We win. And we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to have a lack of confidence in that. But we are definitely in a battle. The enemy is real. He is powerful. He is slick. But the reality is God is greater. And he's given us all of the tools that we need to be able to stand and do this battle successfully. And so we live in this thing called a messy church, but God has given us all of the equipment, all that we need so that we can fight the good fight of faith and we can win. And we do that with great hope. So you got your Bibles open, I trust now. Let's stand. We want to honor God as we read his word. And I'm going to start in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this word that once again we hold in our hands, the the truth that you have given to us, the This book does not just contain truth, it is the truth. And Paul taught some things to the church in Ephesus in this chapter that we need to hear. Father, we're in a battle. We're in a battle against a powerful enemy. But you are greater, and the tools you are given us make us more than conquerors. And so, Lord, would you give us ears to hear your word today and minds to understand it. And then, God, would you give us hearts to live out for your glory the things that we're learning that the fame of Jesus Christ will be lifted up. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can take your seats. You know that the day that you put your trust in Jesus Christ, 
It was the best decision you ever made. And most of the people in the room, I believe, came to that place of understanding that they needed a savior and they transferred their trust and they put their trust in Jesus Christ. It was the most important decision. It was the best decision you ever made. Now, we sometimes get that confused. We think, well, no, the person I married, that was the best decision I ever made. Lean over to your wife if you're married and say, second best decision I ever made in my life. She's not the best decision you ever made. The house you bought, not the best decision you ever made. The car you own, not the best decision you ever made. The job you have, not the best decision you ever made. The best decision you ever made was the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. That was the best decision you ever made. But you need to understand something. The day you did that, you launched a war. You launched a war. There was a battle that was going on. And there's a battle that's going on in your life every day. And that's what we want to talk about today is Paul gives this church some help and some encouragement to think about the battle that we're in. Hey, church, we're in a battle. And if you're not feeling the battle, it's either because you're not saved or you're not being obedient to God. There is a battle and we're in it. But we have great hope because we win. And so we want to dive in. There's four things we want to take a look at today. Here's the first one. Ready for battle? You've got to have desire. Desire. Our strength is in God. That's where our desire has to be. The reality that our strength is in God. Look at verses 10, the first part of verse 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord. After all the things that he summed up in this book, and he's just finished talking about marriage and wives and husbands and children and bond servants and masters, and all, he comes to this, he says, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Put on the whole armor of God. We have to have a desire. We have to have a passion. We have to be ready for the battle with the armor. Now understanding as Paul is writing this, he's, in, in Ephes- in, 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 he's writing to the church in Ephesus, but he's in prison. He's probably got a Roman guard on each side of them. He's, he's standing and he's looking at guards at the, at the gate and at guards at the doors and guards up and down and all over the place. And he's seeing guards going by with their armor on. And it was a great picture for him to understand. Um, not a picture I would naturally understand. I'm just not used to that kind of stuff. So I thought, what, what would be the best picture for me to be able to understand that? And I, I thought back to when I was probably 10 years old. And uh, my brothers, who were older than me, they wanted to play ball hockey in the driveway. And I was the 10-year-old guy, so I'm the guy going in goal. And we had these pads that were great for ball hockey. And I had a, I had a blocker, and I had a mitt, and I had, a, I had probably a baseball mask on my head. But, um, but when it came to protecting my chest, uh, we didn't have a good chest protector. And I'm pretty sure my brothers were trying to hurt me. They would wind up and blast that ball, and because I didn't have the best equipment, what would I do? I'd flinch. I'd flinch. I was afraid because I was it's going to hurt. And um, I didn't have what this kid has. Uh, for I didn't have that, like head to toe armor. You couldn't hurt that kid if you ran over them with a truck, right? I didn't have that. Well, but this is what Paul is kind of saying. He said, "You put on the armor because it will protect you." And uh, the other thing that's in the context of this is you put on all of the armor. You don't just stick on a helmet and get a net. You don't just put on one glove and you put it all on. And that's in this text. And the other thing it says is you put it on 
You put it on once, it's permanent. You put it on. It's not you put it on on Sunday. I'm going to church. I'm going to put on the armor of God because people are going to ask me stuff and I got to sound spiritual. I'm, 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 I'm going to be in small group. You got to put on the armor of God tonight. No, no. You need the armor of God just as much when you go to the workplace as you do when you go to church. And it's the, the picture of that word in Greek is you put the armor on and it stays on. It's part of your life. It's not like hockey equipment that goes on and off two or three times a week when you, you go back for a game, you go back for, it's not like that, for a practice. It's not like that. You put the armor on. You put on the armor of God. It's the armor, first of all, that God supplies, but the reality is he is a part of all of that armor. In Colossians 1, 11 to 13, it says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. May you be strengthened with all power. Put on the armor of God. As a follower of Jesus Christ, there's a passion that should stir up inside of us to be as close to God as we can, to be putting on the things of God that will protect us and take care of us. We need to be filled with desire. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war again according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We have the armor that will defeat the enemy. So the first thing is there's got to be a desire. You have to have a passion to be like Jesus Christ, to put on God, to put on the armor. We're going to see what that is in a few minutes. Here's the next thing we though, we need to be discerning. We need to discern. The enemy is real. The enemy we face is real. Look at the end of verse 11. Now, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authority, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The enemy is Satan. And he's real. In 1 John 2, 15 and 16, it says, don't love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possession is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the prince of this world is Satan. He is real. He was once called the chief angel, the anointed cherub, and the star of the morning until he rebelled against God and took a host of angels out of heaven to follow him. He is real. And Jesus spoke about him in Luke 10, 18. Jesus spoke with him in Mark 4, and Matthew 4, 3 to 10, when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Paul and Peter and James and John all speak of him as a personal being. He is named in Scripture as the anointed cherub, the ruler of the demons, the ruler of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the great dragon, a roaring lion, the vile one, the tempter, the accuser, and the spirit working in the sons of disobedience. He is real. 
52 times he's called Satan or the adversary. 35 times he's called the devil, the devil or the slanderer. Satan is real. And you better believe it, he's powerful. He's powerful. You know he's powerful because you've seen how, how you've fallen under his spell. You've seen how he's manipulated you and how you've fallen into sin. And, and so I don't want him to go with the devil. He's nothing. Yeah? You just look at every time you sin. Now, don't blame Satan. You sin because you choose to, but he's powerful. But let me say this. He's not all-powerful. Right? He's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Don't lose sight of this verse, 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God, and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. He that's in you is greater than he that's in the world. So I don't need to fear. I don't need to wonder. I don't need to know who's in charge, who's got the power. The power belongs to God. But Satan is real, and he's powerful, and he's a schemer. He's slick. He works in your life. He, he tricks you. He makes you think things you shouldn't think and believe things you shouldn't believe. And you come back and he throws a lie in your face and there you go, you go believing it again. Like, um, how about this? Um, God didn't really love you. He didn't really save you. Uh, that sin that you committed, that put you on the shelf and you're now useless to God. Your sin isn't really gone as far as the east is from them. All of those are lies. Those are lies from the pit of hell. But Satan is a schemer and he's a tricker and he's slick and we fall for his schemes too many times. He tempts his children to immorality. Tempts us to sin, to go after what we want and choosing it before what God has for us. He, he, has, he tempts us into worldliness and Pride, he tempts us into self-reliance. Now, I'm okay. I can make it on my own. Men especially, you struggle with this. Like, I got it all together. I'll figure it out. When it's not going right, I'm not asking for help. I'm going to fix this on my own. And we're somehow some self-reliant creature that thinks we're better. Now, that's a, that's a scheme of the evil one. Instead of being God-reliant, we become self-reliant. Or, or maybe it's um, we become self-satisfied and I'm satisfied in who I am and what I can do. All of that is trickery from the evil one. We see Satan at work today. We see it in our society. We see it in the breakdown in marriage. We see it in the challenge of homosexuality. Can I say, because I've talked about this a couple times recently, that I want to go back, hey, church, people who don't know Jesus Christ need to be loved. And we should be known as the most loving people in the entire world. Don't expect people who aren't Christians to live like Christians. We need to love them and care for them and, and, and reach out to them, whoever it is. But, but Satan has confused the world. He's confused it in marriage. He's confused it in partnership. We, we even look at it and we see it today as a confusion in roles, uh, just on understanding who I am. And uh, today I identify as, a, it's not who I identified as yesterday. And somehow that's become some acceptable thing. That's deception that comes from the pit of hell. And we need to love those people. 
And we need to care for them because God loves them and he cares for them. And if you know someone and, and they're talking about, I, 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 I'm changing who I think I was. Don't you stop loving them. Don't you stop caring for them. But understand they're deceived. And don't be deceived. That's what the schemer does. He's slick. He's careful. He knows what he's doing. The church is being seduced away from the foundations that the word has, the, the word has clearly laid out. Because Satan is a schemer. But maybe those aren't your things. How has Satan been slick and scheming in your life? And maybe it's filling you with doubt. Uh, maybe it's um, the, the practices that you do, the thing, the sin that you get caught up in. And you're like, it's not that serious. It doesn't really matter. I can control it whenever I want. And yet you can never control it. Satan is real. Satan is powerful. Satan is a schemer. And, and we're in a battle against him. And we're in a battle against him. Look at verse 12. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He says in the next verse, take on the armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. So Satan, when he fell, took a whole host with him. They're angels, fallen angels. What are they called today? They're demons. That's what they are. Um, I grew up in a church where you weren't really allowed to talk about Satan very much. He was kind of like pushed off to the side. Like he really, we don't really want to talk about him. You never could talk about demons. That would be like unbelievable if you'd ever use those terms. But that church, you could hardly talk about the working of the Holy Spirit either because that was kind of out there, right? Let me tell you something. Satan is real. And his demons are real. Now they're powerful, but they're not all powerful. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place. Satan doesn't probably have time for you and I. There are bigger fish to fry in this world than you and I. And so he has his minions. And his minions are the demons. And the demons do his bidding. And they tempt us. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I read this uh, quote this week. It was very helpful for me. Listen carefully. Paul uses a variety of terms to refer to our spiritual enemies. The demonic categories are not explained, but rulers no doubt reflects a higher order of demons. Uh, power are another rank, and world forces of the darkness perhaps refers to the demons who have infiltrated the world. Dealing with demons, listen, listen carefully. Dealing with demons in one's Christian life is not a matter of finding the technique to send them away, but of being committed to the spiritual means of grace that purifies the soul so that there's no unclean place that demons could occupy or by which they might gain advantage. Don't you ever tell me the devil made you do it. Yeah, Flip Wilson's line, for those of you who are over 40 years old, is a line by an unsaved man. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You do it when you go and you sin on your own. 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, the Bible says. And we want to be really careful when we start passing responsibility for our sin off to someone or something else. Here's what James 4 says. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will... Right, I, didn't, I know I didn't set you up for that, so you're going to do much better the next time I do this, okay? In James chapter 4, in verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will... He will flee from you. He doesn't have a choice. He doesn't get to go, no, no, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm going to keep on keeping on. It's not an option for him. You resist the devil, and the Bible says he will flee from you. The challenge for us is we just don't, we just don't resist. We get caught up in our sin. I want what I want more than I want what God wants, so I don't resist. And then we wonder why we fall in sin. I don't need someone coming kicking the devil out of my life. The Holy Spirit does that. When God, when God filled me, when God saved me, he took residence in my life. You know, a good book, a little booklet, you can look up online and read it. My Heart, Christ's Home. It's all about searching your heart and different areas of your life that maybe you've never surrendered and, and, and just making sure your life is all clean before the Lord. But that's about examination. That's about yielding yourself you resist the devil, and the Bible says he will flee. He doesn't have any choice in the life of a believer but to flee. The whole discussion about spiritual warfare is an interesting discussion out in our world, and there are lots of uh, extremes on it. You have the extreme I grew up in where you didn't use the word Satan or demon or Holy Spirit to over here, and we're bossing Satan around telling him what he's going to do and what he's not going to do on the other end of it. So let me tell you what we believe as a church. You can go look this up in our doctrinal statements, uh, in the doctrinal statements under other topics, and here's what it says. Listen. Satan and his de demonic servants viciously oppose the work God performs in and through his people. God, who by his nature is infinitely more powerful than Satan. Did you hear that? God, who is infinitely more powerful than Satan, in due time will have complete and total victory over Satan. Although it is appropriate to pray in Jesus' name for protection against demonic activity temptation and all the rest. The scripture does not instruct the Christian to bind Satan in Jesus' name. Rather, the scripture instructs the Christian to combat against Satan. Well, how do we do that? Well, you do that by, and there's a list of things right on our, on our website. You do that by humbly drawing near to God. You spend your time being close to God. You be close to God, humbly coming before him. I don't deserve this. I don't earn this. And, and Satan will flee from you. The next thing it says is resist Satan's temptation. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will. You're like, yeah, but I've got this problem. I've got this thing. It keeps coming back up in my life, and I don't have victory over it. And it's not because God is too weak. It's because you don't resist. You're like, well, no, no, but I try and resist. Really? Do you really try and resist? Do you really cry out to God? Do you really humbly come to him? Do you really, do, that sin in your life that, that wins so often in your life, 
You just think about the last time that you fell in it. And you think about the three or four exit ramps that God gave you along the way that you chose not to take. You chose. You deliberately. Maybe it was a business deal and you knew, if I get into this, I'm going to have to cut corners. I'm going to do this. And you knew. There were ways out. You chose not to take them. Uh, maybe it's pornography and, and you're into that thing and you're just, you just know. And it's like every time there's a way to escape and you choose not to take it. And you don't resist the devil Rightly applying the truth of Scripture is the next thing. When Jesus was challenged in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, every time he just answered Satan with the word of God. He knew the word and he answered Satan with the word. Sometimes we find the challenge in the battle because we're not forgiving each other or we're not putting on the armor of God or we're not demonstrating faithful to the Lord by enduring. All those things are kind of in our statement of what we believe about this thing called spiritual warfare. But understand this. God's Holy Spirit indwells you. You cannot serve two masters. And God is greater. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It doesn't mean we're not tempted. It doesn't mean, but Satan doesn't rule your life. That's not true. Not if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Satan is real and he's powerful and we need to be discerning about him. But this is not a message of loss. This is a message of victory. And I want you to see it now as we move into verses 13 to 17. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? So that you will not, so that you'll be able to stand against the evil day and having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. So he moves now into this thing that's, that's called putting on the armor of God. This is about being dressed it's about being properly dressed, having the right equipment on. I didn't have the right equipment on when I was a little kid playing ball hockey, and I knew it was going to hurt. But God has given us the equipment that we need. Now, Paul frames this in the picture of being in prison, chained between two Roman soldiers, seeing the guards going back and forth, and so that you can have a better picture of it, we're going to put it up on the screen, what a Roman soldier would look like. And uh, so you've got these Roman soldiers and they were dressed. They were ready for battle. That's the picture that Paul is using as he, he gives us this list of being ready for the battle. You don't pick and choose parts to put on. You, you put it all on. And you don't take it off. It's who you become. It's who you are. So what were the things? He says, put on the belt of truth. When preparing for battle... The first piece of equipment that the first soldier would put on was this piece that would bind the other pieces together. It wasn't a, a piece for a, adornment for the soldier. It was an essential part of the equipment because as it tied the other pieces together, it would give him freedom so that he could move. But the belt of truth is not the Bible. The sword is the Bible. It's right in the text. I don't have to defend that. It's, it's right there. So it's the belt of Truth. It's the application of truth in your life. 
Put on the belt of truth, the things that you're learning, you're doing them. Put on the belt of truth as you come to church. And you, you hear me pray, I pray just about every Sunday, that, that God would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and then hearts to passionately live out what we're learning. That's the belt of truth part where the things we're taking in and we're learning, we're living them out in our life. So what difference have all the messages you've ever learned in this church or wherever you've gone to church, what difference do they make in your life? That's what he's talking about. Put on the belt of truth. The things you've heard from God's word, do them, apply them. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31, 32. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that's in you. Why? Because you're putting on the truth. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Put on the belt of truth, the application of God's word in your life. Here's the second thing. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. For the Roman soldier, that was probably a chain mail kind of thing. It was used to protect the heart and the vital organs, covered him basically from his neck down to his waist. Today, we would say, you put on your bulletproof vest. You put that thing on. It'll protect your vital organs. But it's the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You're like, I, I don't feel very righteous all the time. Two parts to the breastplate of righteousness. The first part is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Well, okay, now, so now I don't know any more than I did when you first started talking about the breastplate. Okay, so what's imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is the righteousness that God put on you the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You didn't earn that righteousness. You didn't deserve that righteousness. When you trusted God, all of your sin was put on him and all of his righteousness was put on you. It's imputed righteousness. And so when we go into battle, we go in with great confidence knowing that I have the righteousness of Christ on me. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That happens the moment that you are, you are justified. You're made just like you never sinned. And God's righteousness is put on you. So there's imputed righteousness, and then there's the righteousness that happens as we grow up in Jesus Christ. That would be part of our, our sanctification process, and I'm being more like Christ. I'm growing. I'm not what I will be, not what I should be, but I'm sure not what I was because I'm growing up in Jesus Christ, and that righteousness is growing in me. Both of those make up this breastplate of, of righteousness, the righteousness that God puts on me and the righteousness that's developed with God's help and strength as I grow up in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.24, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Our heart, my heart, your heart, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is protected by the breastplate of righteousness. The righteousness that God put on you 
and the righteousness that's growing in you as you are being sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, put on shoes. You've got to wear shoes. Put on shoes for your feet. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes that they would wear, the sandals they would wear would have thick leather soles on them. They would have nails or whatever driven through them into the ground so that they wouldn't slip. They wouldn't fall. They would be like soccer cleats, like baseball cleats, like the track runner's got these little nibs on the bottom of his shoe so he won't slip, he won't fall. So, so what is this gospel of peace? What is this piece of equipment that gives us hope, that, that gives us traction? It's the hope of knowing that you're saved because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of peace. It's what happened when you came to that place, you were distraught and you couldn't understand and, and God saved you and a peace came over you to know that one day you'll stand before God and when he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? You'll be like, I'm with him. It's because of who Jesus is. It's because of what he did. We're coming to that under the helmet of salvation. But this is about the peace that we have because we know, we know that we know that we know that Christ died for us and he is greater and we win and I've got this peace and therefore, I don't slip and I don't stumble and I don't fall. I, the journey I've been on for the last two or three years of my life is to, I've said it to you, wake up in the morning and start before your feet hit the floor by remembering what God has done for you in your salvation, in the gospel. It's the foundation. When Satan attacks and go, you loser, who do you think you are? Nah, it's not about me. It's about what God has done for me. It's about the hope and the peace I have because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Put on your shoes Put on your shoes. And then he says, take the shield of faith. Take the shield of faith. The Roman shield was composed of uh, leather stretched over wood. It was probably two or uh, two or three feet wide, about four feet long. And, and before they would go into battle, they would soak it all in water. They would just soak them in water. Why? Because the enemy, when they would shoot their darts, when they would shoot their arrows, they would dip them in pitch and they would light them on fire. And so they would take them and you would put up your, your, your shield and it would hit that and it was wet and it would put out the flame. That's the picture. That's the picture that Paul would have understood as, as he tells us this story. Take the shield of faith. Why? Because it's able, it's able to put out the fiery darts that come from the evil one. Faith is a critical piece of this. And again, there are two parts to it. There's this saving faith, that place where you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And that saving faith is part of the shield of faith. When Satan brings the lies, you use the shield of faith, of understanding who God is and what he's done for you. And you said, get away from me, Satan. That's not true. That's a lie. And the shield of faith puts out the fiery darts the shield of saving faith, and then the shield of living out our faith every day, trusting God by faith. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's you. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Not firm in your actions, not firm in what you've done, not firm in some church creed, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Take the shield of faith. And then he says, I put on the helmet of salvation. 
The helmet was made of bronze or iron and it was designed, it had probably had flaps that came down the side to protect the side of your face a little bit and around your ears and you put it on. You put that on. You're an idiot if you went into battle and you didn't have your helmet on. It was a helmet of salvation. The, the shoes were the result of knowing you were saved. The helmet is the picture or the, the thing that protects the reality of our salvation. But what is our salvation? It's the work that God did to bring you to the place where you could be saved. It's what he did through Jesus Christ. Back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and now they're dead in their trespasses and sins and there's nothing they can do to fix it. And God's redemptive story begins to come to life for us and we see it and we see the laws all being laid down and man couldn't meet those and uh, blood of bulls and goats couldn't say they were a picture of what Jesus Christ would do. And then Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ died on a cross. He came as the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice to die in your place. You had a debt you couldn't pay. And we had a savior who paid that debt. And then he died to pay your price. The wages of sin is death. But God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and you will be saved. Don't go trying to get to God. Don't go working for your salvation. But what we do as a result of our salvation is we're supposed to give our lives to the Lord. But that's not how you get to God. You come to him through the finished work of Jesus Christ by putting your faith in Christ alone. That's the picture of salvation. And so Paul is saying, make sure you've got that piece right. Make sure you understand what God has done for you. And make sure you've transferred your trust. And you're wearing the helmet of salvation. So the question today is, have you got that helmet on? Can you remember, can you go back, do you know the story of what Christ has done and how he paid the price for you? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone? God's redemptive story is an awesome story. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. If you're here today, you maybe have come to this church 10 times and you've heard this before, and, and yet you've never come to the place of trusting Christ alone. Today is the day. Believe Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept the fact you're a sinner. You're separated from God. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. But today, Lord, today, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. Put on the helmet of salvation. And then he says this. He says, um, take on the sword. After you get the shoes on your feet and you got all those other pieces come together. You got the shield of faith and the helmet. And he says, um, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword was probably 18 inches to two feet long. The sword represents the Bible. It's the only weapon that's listed, it's the only piece of, of, uh, of um, armor that's mentioned that has any offense in it. Everything else is defensive, really, except for the sword. He said, take the sword, which is the word of God, and use it. 
Last night, and my wife's not been feeling well this week, so she was at home last night. She was watching. He said, Paul, you talked about the sword, and you never picked up your sword. Okay? Okay, I'm not making that mistake twice. This is the sword. This is the sword. We have to use it. So often we think, well, no, I can talk to people. I can convince them of something. And we stick our knowledge into things. And we don't come back to what God's Word said. This is the weapon of choice. This is what will be used to change hearts. All the scheming that you might have, all the plans that you might have, they might be good, but we've got to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we need to use it. We need to use it. We need to, when we're answering people's questions and their concerns and the passion they have for things, somebody whose marriage is in, we're like, oh, no, no, don't leave your wife, don't leave your wife, don't, 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 and we never talk to them about what the Bible says. Go back to what the Word says. The person who's not being faithful to something or a job or a what's God called you to. The person who is lazy. It's not like you get to work, you bump. How about if you don't work, you don't eat? That's what the Bible says. Take the word of God and use the word of God. You will never be wasting your time when you're sharpening your sword. You'll never be wasting your time when you're learning God's word we need to take this weapon and we need to use it. We need to use it often. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When Christ was tempted, he answered Satan by using the word of God. And as soldiers of the cross, we need to become more and more proficient in using this weapon is the answer for the reason of the hope that is in us. And then one more thing. Ready for battle? You gotta be disciplined in prayer. You have to be disciplined in prayer. Now there isn't a part of the armor that ties to this one and Paul's going through. I don't know if he ran out of armor pieces or what. It's an illustration. But then he comes to this he says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Always, at all times. Prayer isn't something we just do on Sunday morning or in small group or before you go to bed or at a meal. Our lives are to be filled with prayer. Calling out to God when we have a need in the workplace. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We're going to call out to God. When you're struggling with something in your family, crying out to God at all times, we need to be praying. Always, at all times. Praying in the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit should be understood as praying in the power of the Spirit, leading and doing God's will. Praying in the Spirit. And don't come up to me and say, hey, hey, God told me, God told me, I was praying and God told me, and then tell me something that God's Word says is wrong. That's not praying in the Spirit. God's, word's never gonna, God's Word and God's will is never going to direct you to something that goes against His Word. So pray in the Spirit. Pray according to the will of God and seeking the will of God. It says, with all of your prayers, all of them, at all times, whether it's adoration or praise or thanksgiving or supplication where we're asking for God or whether it's when we're confessing to God, 
in all of your prayers. We need to be praying at all times in the, in the power of the Spirit with all of our prayers, all kinds of our prayers. How much time did you spend praying this week? How much time did you spend on your knees before the Lord? How much time did you cry out to God? And yet you come to church and you feel defeated because sin's ruling in your heart sometimes. And yet, you didn't put on the armor and you didn't pray. And then we wonder. God helping me, God helping us, that we'd be much better at that. He says, be alert when you pray. It's not a passive thing. In Mark 14, it says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You want to stay away from temptation? Watch and pray. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We're at a war. We need to be alert. And then keep on praying. Don't give up. In Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And then he goes into this last part with this I'm done. He says, uh, for each other, pray for each other. Pray for all the saints. Don't just pray for yourself, but pray for your family. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your neighbor. Pray for your coworker. Pray for your small. Pray for all the saints. And then he says this. I love this. He says, and would you please pray for me, he says. Would you please pray for me? He's in prison. Two Roman guards chained to them. He's not going anywhere. Would you, would, you, would you please pray for me? That's powerful. And I don't equate myself to where Paul is. I don't equate myself at all to what his situation is. But I can say this. Would you please pray for me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for the leaders of our church? Would you pray that God would protect us and God would use us? Would, would you pray? Would you pray for me? Don't pray that I'll get better looking. That's not going to get fixed. Don't pray that my toenails will not be ingrown. I don't really care about those things. I don't have ingrown toenails. But, <laughs> but look what he asked for. Look what he asked for because it's so important. He says, um, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. You don't have to pray for anything else for me right now except that. And we should be praying that for each other, proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology, lifting high the name of Jesus, believing firmly in the power of prayer and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. That's what he asked for. To pray for each other. And pray for me. Pray for me. Well, so what? Hey, church, we're in a battle. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in that battle. But we need to be desirous to have the armor of God that he gives, that he supplies. We need to be desirous to have it on. We need to be very discerning of the evil one who's seeking to tear down and who's seeking to destroy. And some of you, before you leave this place today, you need to be on your face before God. You need to be in your, in your seat. You need to be praying, Lord, I've been deceived. I've been tricked. I've been, my eyes haven't been on you. But you are greater and I'm going to trust you. And now you need to put on the armor of God. And then we need to pray. We need to pray. Why? Because we're in a battle. We're in a battle, but we're in a battle against a foe who's not all-powerful. Our God is all-powerful. 
and we win. And you don't have to leave here without victory today. Victory is ours in Jesus Christ. A fresh start, a new beginning because of who God is and what he has done for us. The church we're a part of is a messy church. And it's in a battle. But God is greater and we win. Let's lean in for his fame and for his glory and for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word the strength that comes from it, the help that we receive in it. And Lord, your word is powerful. It's strong. It does the work that needs to be done. And do that work in us, God, that, that your glory would shine, that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Father, would you um, speak to our hearts and the one who needs to confess sin, God, we would do that and get it right. The one who needs encouragement, Father, we'd find our encouragement in you. The one who is not saved, this would be the day they would trust Jesus Christ. Do it all, God, for your fame and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.